0: you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And I don't know what your view on uh, faith healers is this morning, but I hope as you go from the service this morning, you'll have a a biblical view going forward here. You say, what's that got to do with the message? Well, by the time I get done, hopefully it'll be self-evident. If not, I have failed miserably, right? Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, Christ begins his ministry, and let's ask the Lord to bless the study. Lord, we thank you for your word. Now minister to our hearts as, as I teach, as the Holy Spirit teaches us, and may we have ears to hear, and may it be a fruitful study for your glory, pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in Matthew, and do we have the overhead? Oh, yes, we do. Okay. The theme is Christ the King, and we are in chapter 4, uh, the test of the king, uh, proving his moral right to the throne by not yielding to temptation, and especially that last part here, exhibiting his kingdom resume. Uh, we will be considering that uh, at some in some detail this morning here. Well, Matthew orchestrates his letter, To highlight the truth that Jesus is the promised coming Jewish Messiah. Everything up to chapter 4, verse 12 is really preliminary to Christ's public ministry. But it all serves to develop a messianic king theme. We see this in the genealogy of Christ, his unique virgin birth, the recognition of the birth of the king by uh, the king of the Jews by Gentiles. Christ's providential placement as a child in Nazareth, fulfilled prophecy of a messianic forerunner in the person of John the Baptist, Christ's baptism as the fulfillment of all righteousness, and then Christ's victory over Satan's intense temptation. All of this was preliminary to Christ's public ministry. But now in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, we have a a transition, a thematic transition to Christ's public ministry. Between the end of Christ's temptation by Satan in Matthew 4.11 and the statement in 4.12, where we're going to pick up today, between 4.11 and 4.12, there's a gap of about one year, namely the first year of Christ's ministry, which is sometimes referred to as his Judean ministry. Now, the synoptic Gospels, that is the, the similar Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, omit this time period. They don't really deal with it. But it is dealt with by John in the book of John in chapter 1, 19 through chapter 3, verse 36. Therefore, we see that Matthew wrote more thematically at times than he did chronologically. Again, he is writing to connect certain dots to showcase that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. Now, as we think about Christ's ministry, there is, uh, you could break it up into kind of three-year segments. Uh, A year of obscurity, like I say, the synoptics don't really deal with this, but then a year of popularity, that's what we're going to look at this morning, and then followed by a year of rejection. Things kind of went south, uh, culminating in in the cross. Well, Matthew, in effect, uh, omits uh, this year of obscurity and begins with the year of popularity. He skips year one of the Judean ministry and begins with the Galilean ministry. That's where we pick up the narrative today as uh, presented by Matthew in chapter 4, verse 12. And we read there, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. As I say, Jesus did have a public ministry before this, but not really an explosive, popular one that would happen now. John the Baptist's ministry overlapped a little bit with that of Jesus' ministry, but John being put in prison signaled that his preparatory ministry for the Christ was essentially completed. Now the spotlight was to be on Christ alone. As John himself said, he must increase, I must decrease. Well, now the transition was essentially complete. John the Baptist was put in prison and Jesus departed to Galilee, which would be the mainstay, the main place of his public ministry. We read on verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the regions of Zebulun, Nephtali. So first stop in the territory of Galilee was Christ's hometown of Nazareth. Now we read about this in Luke chapter 4, and we find that after speaking in, that, in, the, in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth, that these hometown folk tried to kill Jesus. I mean, that message did not go over well. And so what did he do? Uh, They wanted to grab him and throw him over the hill, but he just kind of miraculously walked through the midst of them and left. And we find here that he then went and dwelt in Capernaum, which was about 20 miles north of Nazareth. And uh, we'll see if all my maps come up today. We'll see if even one comes up today. Oh, there we go. (laughs) That's too far, I think. There we go. So, okay. Okay. It went from Nazareth Here comes into Galilee. He's been down here in, way down here off the map in, in Judea, the Judean ministry, but now he uh, comes to Nazareth, they try to kill him, and he goes on up here to Capernaum, uh, right on the sea of Galilee, one of the, the, the major city or town, on, on the Sea of Galilee. Now Nazareth was a little place, an obscure little village, about 400 people perhaps. But in contrast, Capernaum was a a more flourishing town on a major trade route. Probably we estimate about 1,500 people lived in Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum means village of Nahum. Perhaps it was named after the prophet Nahum. We don't really know. But a few things about uh, Capernaum. Matthew was from this city. This is where Jesus runs into Matthew and and calls Matthew. And Matthew gets saved and becomes an apostle. Matthew was from this city, and it became Jesus' headquarters for his Galilean ministry. Matthew 9.1 calls it, quote, his own city. So this is Christ's adopted city. Grew up in Nazareth, but uh, for his Galilean ministry, his headquarters becomes Capernaum. It's also the home of Peter, and probably his brother Andrew, as well as James and John. And notice specifically says, by the sea and in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, these details are significant because they align perfectly with prophecy, as I will show you. But notice he continues here, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, so Jesus' relocation to Capernaum in Galilee was in accordance with Isaiah's prophecy. It lines up perfectly with the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, remember the context of Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is very clearly a messianic text involving the promised child, unto us a child is given, and so forth. This promised child who would be born to sit on David's throne and rule forever. Thus, Matthew continues to tether the life and ministry of Christ to the Old Testament messianic prophecies, showing that he is the fulfillment of them. Well, Matthew 4 15 and 16 constitute a paraphrased quote of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And the level of detailed prophetic precision here is amazing in terms of how it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So note verse 15, the land of Zebulun, he's quoting now, as I say, quoting in a, in a paraphrased form, uh, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, uh, verse 15, the land of Zebulun, In the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were two of the 12 tribes, uh, the tribes of Israel, two of those original 12 tribes uh, of Israel in the Old Testament that roughly corresponded to the region of Galilee in the days of Jesus. So uh, note uh, what we're talking about here. I don't know my, there we go. Okay, so we're talking here. This is, uh, Nazareth was really in this area, but uh, Capernaum was in Nephtali. So these are the areas that he's talking about that really relate to the Messiah's ministry. And uh, so that's what we're talking about. And uh, as I say, note, Zebulun corresponds to where Nazareth was located and Capernaum to Naphtali. And the Messiah lived in both places and ministered both, uh, at both places in his Galilean ministry. But note there are additional descriptive phrases here that are of great prophetical significance because they were fulfilled to the letter. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would dwell and really identify with ministry, one, by the way of the sea, two, beyond the Jordan, and three, in Galilee of the Gentiles. I want you to catch that last word, Gentiles, because there's a real strong emphasis in relationship to, to that concept here. Note, these things had to all synchronize perfectly in order to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. So uh, note uh, what we have just said. Messiah's ministry would be identified with one, regions of Zebulun and Nephtali, which correspond to Galilee, Two, by way of the sea, that's really an ancient trade route. That's, that's uh, what it was called, uh, the way of the sea. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. Number three, beyond the Jordan, uh, probably uh, the area east of the Jordan, referred to as Perea. We believe that because of what we find in verse 25, and I'll get to that later in the message as well. And then uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, the area way up north in Israel. Uh, Associated with Gentiles. Uh, I'm wondering if this is going to show this morning. I'm really wondering. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, there we go. It does. The way uh, we see here, there's two major trade routes here, but this is the one, the, the way of the sea. It started way up here in Syria, and it came right down really through Capernaum here, on the edge of Capernaum, and went right down here to Caesarea Maritime, on down into. Egypt here, but uh, so anyway, he was going to dwell in conjunction with that that major trade route, which he did. Now, it is fascinating fascinating to realize the Messiah's ministry would be very identified with this Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee, going way back was known for its mixed population. This area up north was the first to apostatize in the Old Testament days. In 721 BC the Assyrians took the northern kingdom captive and then they transplanted gentile peoples to live there resulting in integration with the few Jews that remained behind. Galilee was bordered by gentile territory, uh, the gentile territory of Syria, etc. and thus it became a major crossroads for trade and consisted of a mixture of Gentile and Jewish activity. Uh, someone has said, quote, Judah was on the way to nowhere, whereas Galilee was on the way to everywhere. And that was kind of the feel here a lot of uh, activity. Uh, when you were Gentiles would come into the land, they would come uh, through Galilee. Way back in Isaiah's day, 700 years before the time of Christ, it was already called Galilee of the Gentiles. That designation is is significant here. Consequently, the more racially pure Judea, Judea Jerusalem, Judea, Jerusalem's in Judea, that area down there looked down with scorn on the Galileans. And they ridiculed those up north with that Galilean accent. They consider people from that area, from that territory, to be compromised because of the Gentile influence. And uh, you will note here that Galilee um, Galilee, is surrounded by Gentile territory. Uh, Decapolis, the uh, 10 Gentile cities over here. Uh, the Phoenicians up here. Uh, Syria. So you got, you know, lots of contact with the Gentile territory all around Galilee. In John 7, when some were surmising that Jesus might be the, the Christ, others recoiled saying, will the Christ come out of Galilee? John 7, 41, will the Christ come out of Galilee? It's unthinkable. They're saying, well, I think Jesus might be the Christ. <laughs> He's from the wrong place. Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Unthinkable. But in fact, the answer was, yes, yes, he will. The text was right there in Isaiah chapter 9. MacArthur says, the fact alone that Jesus so completely fulfilled Old Testament prophecy should be enough to convince an honest mind of the Bible's truthfulness and authority. I want to really hone in for a moment on this. This emphasis on Messiah's ministry being identified with Galilee of the Gentiles is yet another echo that his ministry had a broader scope than merely Israel. It also involved the Gentiles. This was, in effect, a foreshadowing of Christ's commission to reach out to all nations, as seen at the end of the book in the Great Commission. And notice what it says here, verse sixteen. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now, verse sixteen again is a loose quote of Isaiah nine two, but if you really understand what's being said, it is staggering, staggering, inly. <laughs> It's marvelous is what it is. It's staggering and it's marvelous. Uh, The cultured pious Jews in the Jerusalem area considered this region up north so affected by Gentiles that they considered it to be a place of darkness. And as it were, a place where the darkness was most dense as described in the shadow of death. I mean, if you live up in that territory, you live up in darkness. You live up in the shadow of death. Well, in contrast, Jerusalem, you know, that was the holy place. That was the place of light, enlightenment, and life. So you can just see the attitude here. Now, who would have ever thought this? This darkest of all places in the land of Israel would be the first to see the great messianic light most brilliantly. The word dawned. You catch that at the end of verse 16? Those that sat in this region in the shadow of death, light has dawned upon them. That word dawned indicates that the light first shone here most brilliantly. This is where the light of God's Messiah dawned. It started here. Now, this is most amazing. Cultured Jews automatically assumed the light of the Messiah would shine first and foremost, on Jerusalem, the capital city, the holy city, it would dawn there. It wouldn't dawn up there in the, in the place of death, in the place of darkness. No, it would dawn on Jerusalem. No, no. They assumed, I mean, Jerusalem was the most favored place before God. It was a place of learning, the place of worship, the place of pure Judaism. But no, instead God chose a location rejected by these religious leaders, a place associated with spiritual darkness, where he would first shine the messianic light in a major way. God's ways are not man's ways. Think about this. The birth of Christ in the most humble of circumstances, the Gentile welcoming committee, the wise men from the East, The strangeness of the forerunner, and he was a strange guy, wasn't he? I mean, he really was. Let's face it, John the Baptist was a strange bird. (laughs) Strange forerunner, the things he ate, his habits. And now, and now, the dark place of Messiah's reveal, they're all totally unconventional and unexpected People, all their wisdom get together and make plans. We'll think this is always a little apprehensive about that. I'm not sure God's in all of your great wisdom. He tends to work in in ways that are contrary to that. But here it was all the time, right there in the prophetic scriptures, prophesied 700 years in advance. You can't make this stuff up. You can never just make this fit. This is a total God thing. The context of the Isaiah 9 Messianic prophecy is this. Isaiah 8 predicted the coming Assyrian invasion in which the northern kingdom would be taken captive. But that message of gloom was then followed by a message of future hope as seen in Isaiah 9. This message of hope was centered in this Davidic Messiah who would bring about deliverance and establish an everlasting kingdom of peace. But here's the key. The first dawn of this hope would not be seen in Judea or in Jerusalem, but rather in the dark, shadowy land of Galilee of the Gentiles. This, my friends, was fulfilled to the letter. Note the double emphasis on light here in Matthew 4.16 as quoted from Isaiah 9.2. These people in this region would see a Great light, not just a little spark. They would see a great light. And this light, of course, was the Messiah himself who said, I am the light of the world. This light was the truth of who Jesus is as the divine human Messiah who brings in the kingdom. Nobody ever imagined this light would shine first and foremost on Galilee of the Gentiles. No Jew thought that. They never for a moment thought that Christ would ever come out of Galilee or have any significant ministry there. But here it was literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who came to dwell in Capernaum in perfect accord and fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it appears that this phrase from that time denotes a definite turning point in his ministry. It's used again in Matthew 16, 21, where it marks the beginning of Christ's emphasis on his coming suffering, death, and resurrection. So there are different phases to Christ's ministry. Uh, Here in 417, it marks a definite turning point in his ministry. It marked the point when Christ's light as the Messiah would now clearly be revealed in a most distinct and brilliant manner in the context of Galilee of the Gentiles. Got a quote here from the New Bible Commentary. Verse 17 is the summary of Jesus' message in the first part of his ministry. Compare that with 1621 for his message related to the second part of his ministry. The word preach means to proclaim, to herald, to announce. So he began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the initial proclamation of the king who has now arrived in earnest. The time of preparation is over. It's now time to respond. The word repent means to change your mind and to align with the truth of God. In context, it meant to align with the light of God's truth that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction in the life. It's more than just an intellectual assent. It also involves a heart, a heart commitment that results in sold-out devotion to Christ. A truly repentant person is a changed person. Jesus takes over here where John the Baptist left off. You see, John the Baptist also preached the same message. Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he did this in preparation of the Messiah, who was soon to be presented to Israel. Now, John was removed from the scene, and Jesus begins his ministry exactly where John left off. The message was this. The way to the kingdom is by way of repentance. Only the repentant will see the kingdom. And that never changes. Now, when Christ used the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we find that really this phrase, kingdom of heaven, is interchangeable with kingdom of God in the other Gospels. Uh, So uh, really they mean the same thing. Uh, Remember, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience with a Jewish audience in mind. And because of the fear of using God's name in vain, the Jews tried to stay away from the word God at all costs. So they would often substitute heaven in the place of God. Uh, this scruple we believe is reflected in the gospel of Matthew. Warren Wiersbe says in many places where Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, the parallel passages in Mark and Luke use kingdom of God. So you see what I'm saying? Instead of saying kingdom of God, they would say the kingdom of heaven and uh, so in order not to turn off the Jews, Matthew writing this says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God, but, it, but it's interchangeable. The word kingdom in reference to the Messiah refers to the rule of God on earth in the person of the Messiah. Now there's a slight contextual nuance difference between John the Baptist's message than that of Christ. Uh, you see, John was merely preparing the people for the Messiah who was to come. Now Jesus, as the Messiah, was calling on people to repent in view of the fact that he himself was actually offering the kingdom on the condition of repentance. So John prepared the way, and Jesus actually made the offer. Uh, John Walvoord has a good summary statement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the theme of his ministry until it became evident that he would be rejected. The kingdom being at hand meant that it was being offered in the person of the prophesied king, but it did not mean that it would be immediately fulfilled. It was being offered, but there was a condition of repentance involved here. Now, keep this in mind. Almost everything in Matthew is geared toward the kingdom. What's the theme of Matthew? It's an easy question. We start there every week. Just wanting to know if you watch that first overhead I put up. What's the theme of Matthew? Oh, I'm failing. I quit. Christ the King, Christ the King. Almost everything in Matthew is geared toward the kingdom and the king. Remember, again, the theme of the book is Christ the King. And the goal is to get people into the kingdom. In fact, that's the goal here this morning. If you're not there, we want to see in the kingdom. I hope to see all of you there but you're going to have to respond in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ to get there. The king came and clearly presented the condition of repentance to enter. If you want to get into the kingdom, you have to repent. The way to the kingdom is through repentance. Now, unless one repents, they'll never enter the kingdom, and unless the nation of Israel repents, the kingdom will not come. Uh, They will eventually come to repentance, and and the kingdom will come, but uh, they're not there yet. Uh, note these references: John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The issue is the kingdom here. Jesus, same message: repent for the kingdom is at hand. Peter, after the uh, start of the church, still preaching to those Jews in Acts chapter three: repent and be converted. He says. That he may send Jesus, and the times of refreshment, referring to the kingdom, will come. The issue is always the kingdom. And how do you get there? Well, by way of repentance. Now, the goal of Jesus is to get people into the kingdom. And to help him with this goal, he enlists, as it were, kingdom helpers. Uh, are you one of them? I, I hope so. But in context here we're talking special kingdom helpers that he's enlisting to assist him as seen in verses 18 through 22. Verse 18, and walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Now the sea of Galilee goes by various other names including the lake of Gennesaret, uh, Kinnereth, the sea of Tiberius, and so forth. Sea of Galilee provides most of the fresh water, even to this day, that uh, Israel enjoys. Uh, It is uh, 682 feet below sea level. It's about 13 miles long and seven miles wide. And it is known for its sudden violent squalls that can come up quickly and make the lake very dangerous to be out on uh, when, when this happens. But normally, it is a very beautiful lake. It's what we might call a perfect fisherman's lake. Um, Yeah, there's a a picture. One picture, of Sea of Galilee. It was a favorite place to visit when I was in Israel. Now, we know from John's gospel that Peter and Andrew had been introduced to Jesus as the Messiah about a year earlier. It's found in John chapter 1. Now, evidently at that time, they still continued on with their fishing occupation. But the point I'm making here is that they already knew about Jesus and who he was. This is not a new revelation to them. Their response at this time was not a a spur of the moment kind of thing. They undoubtedly had already given this serious thought. Now, in the context of his Galilean ministry, which became the center of his operations, Really, the height of his, of his ministry in terms of, of expansive ministry. In that context, Jesus calls his first disciples to become full time followers of his. And so, verse 19, then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this was not a call to salvation. They had already come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah in John chapter 1, about a year earlier. So, this is not a call to salvation, but rather a call to specialized service. And, and really a call to specialized preparation for specialized service. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, Christ is a master at taking the ordinary things of life and transitioning metaphorically into a spiritual application. You see, these men caught fish for a living. It's what they did. They were fishermen. But now Christ wants to make them catchers of men. You've been catching fish. I want you to catch people. Peter says, well, "I got the net. Where are we going? <laughs> Who you want, Lord? I'll bring them in." <laughs> no, again, metaphorically, Christ wanted them to catch people for the kingdom. Now, this would involve a learning process. It would involve leaving their old profession behind and becoming full-time followers of Christ, day in and day out. To follow Christ uh, for these men meant entering into a day-by-day mentoring relationship with Christ. It would involve not only oral instruction, but also watching how Jesus did it, watching both his methods and his attitudes, how he responded to people and circumstances. This was truly a way-of-the-master training program. By way of application, people need to be discipled. They need to be taught. They don't just get it automatically. They don't automatically become fishers of men. We need to be taught, and then once taught, we need to teach others. That's the way it works. The way of the master amounts to an invested discipleship commitment in which we build into the lives of other people. There are no shortcuts, really, I think, just hard work. Yes, formal teaching is important, But what was involved here was a way of life learning as they spent life with Jesus day in and day out. And when when you see someone else living it out, there's no more powerful form of being taught than this. Well, Christ was all about winning people into the kingdom. And now he wanted to provide specialized training to these men. So they too would enter in to this kingdom work of catching men. By the way, there really is a, a combination of things that are necessary for this to, to work. There's a commitment on the part of the discipler, but there's also got to be a commitment on the part of the disciplee. Imagine if these guys had said, you know what? We have an occupation here and we're willing to kind of think about it, uh, you know, on our off time. You know, I do have Saturday free, Peter would say, from, uh, say, 2 to 3.30. Could we do it then? no. In this case, this was specialized training for a very specialized role as they would be apostles. Well, they immediately left their nets and followed him. At this point in their lives, uh, really understanding the background of their previous contact with Jesus, at this point they understood Jesus' command to follow him was a lifestyle, full-time commitment, and they responded immediately. They were all in. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So a little further down the way, Jesus saw two other brothers by the name of James and John. By the way, in Mark 3.17, we see that Jesus gave them the nickname, Sons of Thunder, how you like the Lord giving you that nickname? Uh, wow, you know, Thunder, Sons of Thunder, what kind of imagery does that paint in your mind with these guys? You know what Thunder is? It's loud, right? It's strong. It's kind, of, it's kind of hard to control Thunder. And yet God could change them, mold them, make them, and use them. He can use Sons of Thunder, of which I think I might be one. And note the Lord called both sets of brothers while they were busy at work. And say, "Well, I see you guys are just vegging out here doing nothing every day. I got something for you to do." No, 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 no. That wasn't it. The Lord tends to use those already hard at work. John Phillips says, "Quote, God always calls busy people." The Lord's work is no place for lazy individuals. Say, I want a great place in the kingdom, but I'm not going to lift a finger for him here. (laughs) Sorry. They say, if you want something to get done, don't ask the person who isn't doing anything. Rather, ask the person who's already too busy. God wants his people to be hard workers. Yes, balanced, but busy. But here they were with their father Zebedee. And it would appear that Zebedee was a man of some means, as we see that he had hired servants in mark chapter 1 John his son knew annas uh, the uh, high priest so it seems they were pretty well connected here in the jewish society zebedee was married to salome whom i have miscalled salami sometimes uh, she once asked jesus to grant her sons uh, james and john right to sit on his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom she was watching out for those boys. She's a good mama. Uh, you know, they may have gotten their, their spark uh, of thunder from her. I'm not sure. But a little more about her, a comparison of Mark 1540 and John 1925 may indicate that Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if so, this would mean that James and John were the cousins of Jesus, Siloam was one of the women who went to the tomb early on Resurrection Sunday. Well, James and John were also fishermen. And it says they were partners with Peter, and therefore possibly with uh, Andrew as well. And this means that they too would have undoubtedly known the identity of Jesus and that this decision to follow him was not merely a spontaneous, out-of-the-blue commitment without any forethought. Peter, James, and John became prominent among the apostles. They are what we commonly call the inner circle of Jesus. Uh, Peter was the recognized leader of the group. James became the first martyr of the 12, and John became the apostle of love, who, who outlived all the others, and in his latter years was given the book of Revelation. Now, just as Peter and Andrew immediately followed Jesus, so also with James and John and the text makes a point of immediacy, saying immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. See you later, Dad. Oh, would you mind, Dad, picking up the net that uh, Peter and Andrew just left down the way there? It was, boy, it seems kind of abrupt, doesn't it? Immediately they left the boat. I mean, where are you going? We're, we're leaving. We're with him. And they left their father there. As I say, Zebedee had servants, so I don't think it was a situation of father abuse. <laughs> I don't think that. The point is, when the Lord calls, he and his mission are the top priority. There, He was now it was everything. We're throwing in with Jesus, totally here. Well, now, in verses twenty three through twenty five, we are introduced to a, a little feel for what it was like to follow Jesus around in Galilee during these days. It was a time of intense ministry. uh, Fasten your seatbelt. There was a lot to see and learn. Well, in these verses, we have a summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry at the height of his popularity. We have the essence of what defined the nature of his ministry. And we have here an overview of Christ's kingdom miracle credentials. Verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. The territory of Galilee was approximately 70 by 35 miles. Uh, it is estimated that Galilee was, had about 200 villages and towns with a total population of probably about 300,000 people, although Josephus uh, I think, uh, extravagantly said there was perhaps three million people in Galilee. Uh, most everybody thinks that's probably Josephus was uh, speaking evangelistically. <laughs> way, off, way off the charts, probably. But Capernaum, we think, was the largest of the cities. Well, no matter how you look at it, this was a time of intense ministry activity involving the whole of Galilee. Now realize they didn't have cars, right? Uh, they walked almost everywhere they went. This is quite the, the territory to cover Galilee. Perhaps there was a reason Jesus called young men to follow him, right? Old guys have a hard time keeping up here. Jesus' ministry is described in terms of three activities. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Christ's teaching ministry is exhibited in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 through 7, which Lord willing, will get started into next week. His preaching, that is his proclaiming ministry, is illustrated in him saying, for example, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as seen in 417. And his healing ministry was on display in healing all manner of sickness and disease in the course of his Galilean ministry, as illustrated by the nine miracles that are documented in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew 8 and 9 says Jesus taught in their synagogues. Uh, Where did the synagogues come from? Well, when the Jews were taken captive uh, in in the Babylonian captivity, out of that came the development of the synagogue system. The establishment of a local synagogue required a quorum of 10 adult Jewish men. Now, you realize when the temple was destroyed and they were taken into captivity, they didn't have a place to meet all of a sudden. Now, where do we go for worship? There's no temple. The synagogue replaced that. The synagogue building was a place of religious gathering on the Sabbath where it served as a place of prayer and teaching from the scriptures. During the week, it was a, a form of a kind of a, a school, an educational uh, place, an educational center. Now, the leader of the synagogue was not so much a, a, a pastor like figure as he was an administrator. He was constantly looking for rabbis who could come in and teach. It was common to let the visiting Jews read the scripture or or to share from the scriptures. It was kind of like almost Jewish hospitality. We have a visitor. Do you have something to share uh, from the word today? And it would seem that Jesus used this format to share in many of the synagogues in Galilee. Now, teaching involved more an in-depth explanation of God's truth to help people understand it. Preaching was more an authoritative proclamation. So let me ask you, am I a teacher or am I a preacher? (laughs) Yeah, there's overlap here, isn't there? There's overlap. But we're told here that the content of Christ's preaching was the gospel of the kingdom. I want you in your mind to make a mental connection between the gospel of the kingdom, that's the message, and the activity of healing. Make that connection in your mind. The word gospel means good news. And the good news in this context was that the king was now here and was offering the kingdom to the people on the condition of repentance. The good news of the kingdom was about the messianic deliverance from the effects of sin and Satan. The Messiah comes to deliver. He comes to set up the kingdom. This is good news indeed. Now, Jesus Kingdom miracles of healing were done to prove that he indeed was the promised Messiah and that his offer of the kingdom was legitimate. You see, he wasn't just talking about these wonderful things. Rather, he was giving an actual taste of the kingdom to the people in the form of his healing ministry. His message of the kingdom, kingdom good news, and that of him being the king matched perfectly with his kingdom miracles. Isaiah 35 is a Messianic kingdom passage which prophesies healing that will come in the kingdom. What what kind of a a situation are we going to have in the kingdom? Well, Isaiah 35, 5, and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, etc., etc., You see, the Messiah brings in the kingdom. And when he does, universal healing will take place. Jesus proved he was the Messiah by doing kingdom healing miracles. Did you catch it there? Healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. There was no sickness or disease that Jesus couldn't heal. COVID, bring it. No problem for Jesus. He healed all kinds of sickness and disease. Kingdom power in the form of healing was on display through him, uniquely so. Now, we have all kinds of supposed faith healers on the scene. At least we did pre-COVID. But I notice, uh, seriously, they have been pretty quiet uh, as the course of the pandemic has gone along. Why? Why? Well, you know, these faith healers tend to claim on the basis of John fourteen twelve, wrongfully understood, I might add. But they claim on the basis of John fourteen twelve that they're going to be able to do greater works than Jesus. I'm always waiting for them to do a one upsmanship on the resurrection, but. Uh, you know, I say to them, bring it. Let's, let's see it. Stop healing headaches. Let's do limbs today, shall we? They're all phonies, phony to the core as far as I'm concerned, false teachers. False teachers, why don't these pastors ever perform healing in hospitals? That's a legitimate question. I mean, if anybody needs healing, it's these people in the hospitals. Why don't you take your faith to the hospitals? Well, because they can't, because they can't. That's why they don't do it, because they can't. You know what the problem with these phony false faith healers is? They are not the Messiah, and they are not presenting kingdom miracles. Miracles in the Gospel of John are consistently called, are you ready for this? Signs. These miracles that Jesus did always had sign value. They were not done in a vacuum. They were done in reference to prophecy and fulfilling prophecy, pointing to Jesus as the king who was presenting the kingdom. You see, the kingdom and miracles of healing go together. Isaiah 35, Hebrews chapter 6, Verse 5, the writer is addressing those in the early church, still in the apostolic age, and says, uh, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers, there's the word that's translated elsewhere as miracles, and the powers of the age to come. That's the kingdom age. He says, you've tasted the powers, the miracles of the kingdom age to come. The early church in the ministry of Christ and his special representatives, the apostles, were actually able to have a taste of kingdom powers in the form of kingdom healings. You see, technically, these sign miracles of healing belong to the era of the kingdom and the king. What we have in Christ's healing ministry is a little preview of the coming kingdom. That is what the ministry of Christ was all about. He was the king on the scene presenting kingdom miracles as his credentials that he was indeed the promised prophesied Messiah, now present and offering the kingdom. But folks, That's not where we are today. You understand this, I hope. We're not there. Israel rejected the king, and the kingdom offer was then withdrawn and delayed as Christ then went to the cross. That's what chapter 13 is all about, and we won't get there today. But that's what it's about. Remember the distinction between 4.17, which denotes the beginning of Christ's ministry, and that of 16.21, which indicates a change of course in his ministry? I mean, after 16, chapter 16.21, he's no longer presenting the kingdom and offering the kingdom. Now he's going to the cross. They rejected the offer. They didn't repent. It was offered on the condition of repentance. A footnote here John the Baptist did no miracles in John, as we find in John 10 41, 42. The reason for this is you see, John was not the Messiah. He was not offering the kingdom with kingdom demonstrations. He wasn't doing that. He was just preparing the way. He was followed by the Messiah, who did an unparalleled amount of kingdom miracles, showing that he was indeed the Messiah, legitimately offering the kingdom. Verse 24, then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all, catch the word there, all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. You know something? If you can legitimately heal everybody, fame will follow. Yep. Yep. It will. I, I promise you that. I, and who am I to promise anything? But I think I can make that promise very safely. If you can heal everybody, you'll be famous. That's what happened here. There's, you see, there's always plenty of sick people to ensure that that kind of fame happens. I mean, if you're really able to heal everybody. After a few thousand people were healed, the word spread all over the place, even across all borders, even deep into Gentile territory, as seen in all of Syria. Notice the text says throughout all Syria. You realize what we're talking about? Uh, Here's Galilee. Here's Capernaum. All Syria. Are you kidding me? These people are coming from long distances. The word has gotten out. You want healed? We got a man over here who can do it. Big area. Note verse 24 says they brought to him all sick people. he didn't say, well, you know, I'm sorry I can't help you. You are an especially hard case. No. All sick people who afflicted with all kinds of diseases and torments. And they also brought demon-possessed people, showing that Christ's power over the devil who afflicts them was in keeping with kingdom power. And they also brought epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. There was no disease or demon challenge too great. And note, the text makes a clear distinction between demon possession and ordinary physical illness or disease. They're two different things. There, Get this point. It's so key in your theology. There had been occasional healings in past times on rare occasions by a prophet here and there. But this, my friends, was unprecedented. You see, God used miracles to authenticate his special messengers and their message whenever he introduced some new stage in redemptive history. But what Jesus did, my friends, was completely unique. You see, Jesus healed everyone of everything, whatever their problem was. You know what that's indicative of? Let me say it again. He healed everyone of everything, of every disease, of every sickness, whatever their problem was. You know what that's indicative of? The kingdom! That's what it's indicative of, the kingdom! That will happen in the kingdom! Everybody's going to be healed in the kingdom! That's why nobody's doing this today. We're not in the kingdom. The kingdom's not being offered. The king is not here. These are all phony false teachers, these faith healers. They have no idea what the scripture says in context. They have no idea what it means to rightly divide the word of truth. This was kingdom stuff. And the king was presenting his kingdom credentials. That's what this was. Don't claim you're going to do greater miracles than Jesus unless you're prepared to bring in the kingdom and heal everybody. In the land of darkness, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the light was on full bright in perfect fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. It was amazing. Verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Masses of people, great multitudes followed him from all over. They came from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, probably referring to Perea. So note this. Please note this. Okay. <laughs> they came from all of Syria, we've already seen. Now they're coming way down here from Judea, Jerusalem. Uh, Decapolis, this Gentile area here, uh, Perea, they're coming from all over the place to Zebulun, Naphtali, where the light is shining brightly. B.B. Warfield says, disease and death must have almost been eliminated for a brief season from the region. Amazing. Everybody's getting healed. Masses are showing up. Unbelievable crowds. I mean, the testimony was undeniable. Who could, who could not see this is the Messiah? Who could not see this is the king fulfilling the prophecies, presenting the kingdom, saying, repent, it's at hand, and I'll prove it to you. Wow. A few lines from uh, James Allen Francis, uh, who wrote One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a, of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter, in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. And then this line, he had No credentials but himself. How can you account for this life? He had no credentials but himself, but all that he was about aligned perfectly with the prophetic scriptures. What's that tell us? This is undeniably the person who fulfills all of the prophecies of scripture. He is the promised Messiah who would come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to be the come who, kings, who comes as the king, presenting the kingdom with proof in the miracles that he did in fulfillment of prophecy. The only question that remains is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? The kingdom is coming. Everything's pressing towards the kingdom. And we're all about being kingdom workers in that sense. As people come to, to Christ, they have... a Citizenship in the kingdom. They'll have a a place in the kingdom. But if you don't, you will be cast out of the kingdom. Every person sitting here is either going to go into the kingdom or be cast out of it, depending on what you do with Jesus in the here and now. The Bible is very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will ensure your place in the kingdom. But if not, you will not see the kingdom. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it now. Now is the accepted time. Let's stand and have our, our closing song. I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll pause for a moment, and then I'll have uh, an announcement.